the Paul Whiteman papers are at Williams College. The part that researchers had paid most attention to in the past was the arrangement, but there were also contracts. And the contracts confirmed that the absolutely crazy numbers in terms of how much money his band was earning were true. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. The hottest classic film release of the moment is a movie that flopped in 1930 and was hardly seen for decades after that. Learn why King of Jazz, now out from Criterion, is a -a one-of-a-kind sensation when I talk with David Pierce and James Layton authors of King of Jazz, Paul Whiteman's Technicolor Review. Make sure you've got happy feet and everything that comes with them. Subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher to make sure you never miss an episode. It was an expensive flop in 1930, an example of a genre it helped kill off, and unseeable for decades. And yet somehow Universal's King of Jazz, that's its unrestored trailer playing behind me, is the hottest classic film title on DVD and Blu-ray of early 2018. As a musical review, it gives you a picture of Broadway entertainment in the 1920s. As a film made entirely in two-strip technicolor, it represents the pinnacle of an art form hardly anyone knows even existed. And as a film starring the band leader Paul Whiteman, it captures a moment when African-American music was just beginning to permeate the American musical mainstream. Not least in a work that Whiteman commissioned, and that is the film's highlight, George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. Criterion's DVD or Blu-ray is a must-have. Also a must-have is the spectacular coffee table book King of Jazz, Paul Whiteman's Technicolor Review. It's by David Pierce, an American who's an independent film historian and archivist, and James Layton, a Brit who's the manager of the Museum of Modern Arts Film Preservation Center in New York. They tell the film's checkered story, with many extraordinary photos and sketches from its production, and their research contributed to the restoration project as it unfolded. I started by asking them, what made this forgotten film so interesting to them? Well, I think David and I, I'm not sure how David first encountered the film, but my experience was when I was at the Selznick School of Film Preservation. Um, We watched William K. Everson's 16mm print. I'd always heard a lot about the film and it had been a bit elusive to me. 
Um, and we watched it in the Dryden Theatre in Rochester. Uh, so that was a great way to see it with a, at least a small audience. Um, and I had a great time. Um, but then I guess I didn't really know that much about it. Um, I'd never done too much research into it. We wrote about it briefly in our Dawn of Technicolor book. Um, I think David actually wrote those parts. We found some great information about the color design when we were researching in Natalie Kalmus's papers. Um, but we didn't actually know the full story behind the making of the film and behind all of its influences and all the, the people behind it until we actually embarked on this project. Right. And it all goes back to our work on the Dawn of Technicolor, which is the coffee table book that covers the first 20 years of the Technicolor company from 1915 to 1935 and trying to figure out why it took so long for color to catch on in Hollywood. As one of the outcomes of the book, we put together a um, lecture, which included clips of films in early Technicolor processes and gave that lecture in a number of places. And then we got an invitation from the Turner Classic Movies Classic Film Festival in Hollywood to give a presentation there. And I felt that we needed to come up with a different topic. So something a little that was really engaging. So we put together a clip show on early Technicolor musicals. And that ended up being the trigger for this uh, project with King of Jazz. Because afterwards, I got an email from Janice Simpson, who's um, one of the people in the archiving department at Universal Studios, saying, loved your talk. Sorry I couldn't stay. Were you aware that we're working on restoring King of Jazz? And that was really the uh, trigger that got us in contact with Universal and also gave us a chance to kind of use our you know, research hat and figure out, well, what's, what's out there about this movie? Because it really only uh, got a couple of paragraphs in the dawn of Technicolor. Now, it was, I forget the exact number, but something like the 13th uh, two-strip Technicolor feature. David would probably remember better than I. I think it's, is it the 13th all-color sound film? Or the, um... Right. The thing to remember is that the Justice Warner Brothers had pioneered sound films with their Vitaphone process and really promoted them as a different kind of movie and made an enormous amount of money from those uh, first very successful sound films. They expected to be able to do the same with color. And they had not an exclusive contract with Technicolor, but an exclusive contract for the Technicolor cameras. So they had about a six or nine month head start over the rest of the studios when it came to making films in two color Technicolor in 1929. So while it was yeah, probably the 13th all color film, it was, it was Universal's first all color uh, musical coming in quite late in the cycle. So most of the films in that first rush of Technicolor musicals fit very neatly into a couple of different genres. There was the backstage musical, there was the operetta, and there was a review. And Hollywood Review of 1929, Paramount on Parade, Fox's Happy Days, which had a little tiny bit of a plot, um, all, and Warner's show of shows were all in that review format. So Universal thought that they would be fitting into a, a well-established type of film. And Hollywood Review of 1929 was MGM's most successful picture during that season. 
So there was an, seemed to be an enormous appetite for reviews. But as we know, <laughs> that proved not, not to be the case. I mean, it, it seems like those other films are really kind of a grab bag. This seems more, this seems to have more of an overall concept. How did, how did they approach making the film? Well, I think the key to this is the director, John Murray Anderson. Universal brought him out from Broadway. He was a very established director of reviews on Broadway and in London. Um, he had a very sophisticated style, um, drawing a lot from European art theater. He, his, his reviews uh, always had a theme to them. Um, of, and reviews going back to the day, reviews that started in the 1890s, uh, mainly in France, I believe, in Paris, with the Folies Bergère and things like that. Uh, and the review literally started as uh, a review of the year, um, kind of satire on city life uh, in lots of different scenes that were, were joined together by a theme. Um, so Anderson brought a theme to the movie, and that was the star, Paul Whiteman. I'm sure we'll talk more about him in a bit. So he framed it. Uh, each sequence in this review would tell us more about Paul Whiteman and his music uh, and the framing device was Paul Whiteman's scrapbook. And we'd turn each page with each new act uh, and sort of learn more about Whiteman's life indirectly. Well, yeah, let's let's jump to Whiteman then. He was a big name in, I guess you'd call it sweet jazz, came out of uh, highbrow music to some extent, and that his father was an educator and things like that. And he really seems to have been kind of an entrepreneur of jazz who took it to a new level of sophistication and also uh, financial return, frankly. I mean, it was, his was a big show. It was a very popular show. So first of all, Paul Whiteman was a top musician, and he had a real eye for talent. So he attracted uh, very good musicians. He would hire people out of symphony orchestras and greatly increase their salaries. He was focused on the musicianship of his orchestra, who by and large were playing off of sheet music, not improvised jazz that we know of today and creating a dance band. And when they started in Atlantic City in 1920 and then moved into New York City, their gimmick was jazzing the classics. So they would take a classical theme and kind of jazz it up for uh, as a dance number. And Whiteman had a very good sense of what the public wanted to hear. And when the public was getting tired of a particular style, and as the dance band had gone about as far as it could go, he created uh, clones of his own band. So there would be Paul Whiteman bands playing Paul Whiteman um, arrangements, but without Paul Whiteman, those would be on uh, uh, ocean liners, those would go out to other cities, and he had, a, as you said, a real entrepreneur streak to him. Um, and he was lucky to have a very good arranger, Ferdy Grofay, who uh, later became a noted composer in his own right. And he wanted to kind of raise the quality or the, the status of the music he was doing. And that came with his Aeolian Hall concert of 1924, which was tried to show the connection between jazz and dance music and the classical world. And that included the world's premiere of George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. And following the success of that concert, there was a repeat at Carnegie Hall, and then he took the concert on the road with the first month with George Gershwin at the piano. 
And then for the next year or two, they became more of a concert orchestra. And then he could see that that had run its course. And then he hired a number of people out of the Gene Goldcat Orchestra and became a uh, much more jazzy band and moved in uh, to playing uh, first-run movie theaters in large cities. So they would play the, the Paramount theaters. They were tied in with the Paramount Publics chain and might put on five uh, 30- or 40-minute shows a day uh, with a big dance on Saturday night. And Whiteman was able to, to follow the mood of the country and at the same time was um, RCA Victor's, uh, or the Victor Company at the time, uh, biggest act when it came to selling records. And then in 1928, he shifted uh, his label to Columbia. So at the time that uh, talkies came in, the idea of having the most successful dance band on film would be about like hiring the Beatles in 1964. It seemed very obvious um, that you would be getting onto a good thing, a band that everybody knew, but relatively few people had seen live on stage. Well, you know, there's an interesting point about early sound films that occurred to me when I was watching Hallelujah one time. They were doing kind of audio documentary. You know, it's like, oh, here's another sound that's never been on film before, and now we can share it with everybody. And I thought of that as their, you know, in Hallelujah, it has like the gospel numbers and stuff like that. There's a, there's a little time there where the excitement was just hearing things you'd never heard before as opposed to seeing things you'd never seen before. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. When Universal first wanted to make a movie with Paul Whiteman, they, they actually signed him in 1928, soon after their first sound release, I believe, which was a you know, very small budget musical, but was quite a hit. Uh, so they wanted to really ramp it up right to the top um, and do a very big musical. Um, and it was going to be a story of Paul Whiteman's life, very literally. Uh, he had done a sort of semi-autobiography in 1926 called Jazz, which talked a lot about his origins um, and his music. And Universal simply started, when they started working on the script, working from that. Um, it was originally going to be directed by Wesley Ruggles, who, who did uh, the Collegian series, but that didn't quite work out. Uh, Whiteman was never happy with the scripts, and he felt he didn't want to be an actor. He didn't want to have to emote. It was the, his music that was the star and his band. Um, when Ruggles dropped out, Paul Faos, who had just done Lonesome, was brought in. And he was kind of thinking, he was, you know, inspired by the music, of course, but also New York City. And he had these kind of grand ideas of, you know, orchestrating not just the sounds of Whiteman's band, but the sounds of the city to kind of create a sort of, I guess, a sort of city symphony idea. Um, and he built this giant set. They got quite far into the pre-production uh, set that was, you know, similar to the big, um, the big nightclub set from Broadway, um, very kind of avant-garde in, in stylings um, and inspired by the music. Uh, but Whiteman said no again. It was still very much a narrative film. It was there were characters inspired by George Gershwin and by his band members, um, and the production shut down at that point. 
and that was, that was it was only then in 1929 that it was reinvisaged as a review film and John Murray Anderson was brought in. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that they're even talking about having Gershwin basically play himself, which, you know, mu- the the history of musical theater would be very different if George Gershwin had been a movie star, certainly. So. <laughs> I thought the the pictures of Fejos's sets were very interesting because it was very much a silent movie approach to jazz whenever you see a jazz band in a film like sunrise or something you immediately go into this sort of expressionist thing where things are twirling and there's a montage and superimpositions and things like that and that set just looks like it's waiting for that to happen it's got that sort of expressionistic look to it and apparently anderson uh his response was pretty much one look and he said no tear it down Fayosh would have been focused on having a move, a fixed set and a moving camera to break up the images. And what you're talking about in terms of those montages is trying to create, create some visual equivalent to the, you know, uh, syncopation in the, on the soundtrack. And that wasn't at all where John Murray Anderson was coming from. He wanted you to admire his sets, to admire his costumes, to admire the, um, since it was made in Technicolor, the you know, uh, color choices and production. So for better or worse, King of Jazz turns out to, to have very little moving camera in it and to be very much along the lines of the um, you know, movie where the, the camera is in the um, you know, third row middle seat watching what's going on on stage. Well, it's interesting you quote uh, John Murray Anderson in the book after he had seen MGM's Hollywood Review of 1929. And he very much says he's going to create a cinematic review, not just a stage one. Uh, For Universal, he would build on the stage material, quote, to try and make it in every sense of the word a picture and not a stage review. Well, and of course, that's not at all what he did. It is very much a stage review. It has, for almost all of the film, except for a few overhead shots, basically the vantage point of someone in the audience. And it's generally fairly long takes of these elaborate stage numbers rather than him trying to do any sort of expressionistic uh, jumping around and editing or anything like that. Uh, I, I agree. He did use the, the Broadway crane, a very large crane that was built for for the film Broadway um, for use by Hal Moore, who was one of the cinematographers on King of Jazz. He did have a little bit of camera movement, but as you say, it was restrained. I think to his credit, he did did experiment with editing, and King of Jazz was one of the early movies to use a pre-recorded soundtrack. So on the set, they were effectively miming to their own recording. Um, And because of that, I think they were able to to get quite creative with some of the editing. I'm, I'm particularly thinking the Meet the Boys number where the band is introduced, where we have this amazing colorful lighting, red and green, and then lots of interesting angles, but very, very sharply edited and put together. Now, when did Technicolor enter this, this production? That's a good question. I think it was, I think there were possibly, you know, they had used it on Broadway just before. So there were they might have used a color sequence, or there was there was brief talk about Technicolor, but I think it was when John Murray Anderson came on. It was at that point where where they were committed to an all color feature. And what was the working relationship? You know, we always hear that it was it was tough to work with Technicolor. They knew what they wanted Technicolor to show off, and they weren't particularly interested in your ideas. But in this case, I guess Natalie Kalmus was in England shooting something at the time. 
Uh, so they were they were able to pursue at least some of their ideas, and that's one of the things that I think is so strong about the film is that it's not aiming for a naturalistic use of two-strip Technicolor, which is a, con- a bit of a contradiction in terms in any case, but use it for very striking effects. You talk in the book about them using colored gels, which was definitely a Technicolor no-no. Right, because Technicolor wanted to be able to present a consistent image on the screen. And for them, that would be someone in a colorful costume against a neutral background, hit with lots of white light so that they would make register a good image because the Technicolor camera used uh, very slow film by later standards and had to go through uh, both a prism that split the light in half, and then each of the two uh, records had a color filter, which reduced the light even more. And Technicolor's concern was that if you mixed up too many different methods, they wouldn't be able to match the colors from shot to shot. And what uh, Herman Rossa, who was the production designer and costume designer who had worked with John Murray Anderson on Broadway, what he brought to it was that he wanted to use, uh, in some cases, costumes with no color values whatsoever, as in the Bridal Veil number, where all of the costumes are, are uh, brilliant cream color, and to use um, neutral backgrounds, uh, such as that, that number has back, basically, except for the makeup, there's no red or orange in the entire production number. Uh, it's all neutral white and green backgrounds. And also to use uh, color gels on the lights. So they were having colored light go on the actors and on the background. And matching that from shot to shot would have been very challenging for uh, Technicolor. But uh, because the, the color wasn't in the costume, the color was in, in the light. And uh, regardless, the, the result that they got was spectacular. But it would have been not the way Technicolor wanted to work. Yeah, I mean, it's very striking. I mean, the color gels in particular in the, the beginning of Rhapsody in Blue when the dancer Jacques Cartier is doing a uh, uh, sort of a savage drum number, which is essentially blackface, although you don't really see his face. His whole body is, is blackened for it, and that is unfortunately the only appearance of African-American <laughs> or African life of, of any sort uh in a film about jazz but it's very striking that they you know they light him from each side with one of those two colors the red or the green and it's it's so well designed i don't know of anything else from other early films where it has that sort of graphic beauty to it as opposed to trying to get as close to naturalistic color as you can. And imagine the amount of light that it would have taken to get color light reflection off of that black lacquer uh, (laughs) makeup that he had on. I think King of Jazz and its color design is definitely unique for a Technicolor film in 1930 uh, with such bold and explicit use of color. You don't see it coming up again until Dr. X and Wax Museum a few years later. A lot of it reminds me of the way that Disney uh, used three-strip Technicolor in Fantasia, not least that the whole film was sort of introduced piece by piece from a uh, an orchestra, but also the very the very dramatic and striking lighting. It seems to me pretty clear that although the review film w- went away pretty early in the 30s, if it has an air 
in the next decade or so, Fantasia is really it. And I also, it also made me wonder, you know, Walt couldn't have been too happy watching an Oswald cartoon at the beginning of it done by someone else in Technicolor. Yeah, I think that's an excellent comparison, actually, the, the introduction of the orchestra in Fantasia with the, the introduction of the band uh, in King of Jazz. Um, I, I could just add that uh, a lot of the numbers in, in the movie were inspired by either Whiteman's act beforehand. So the Meet the Boys was... How he how he introduced his band on stage. The lights would dim, and he would point a flashlight or a mini a mini spotlight uh, at each band member, and you know introduce them by name, and they'd play their solos and go through. Um, but also the light the lighting throughout the film, I think, was very well developed on stage by Anderson. He was a big fan of colored lighting, and he worked with Herman Russell since the early 20s as well. Um, so it very very much reflects that, that Broadway tradition. Almost everything in the film, to some degree, comes from past stage experience. Some of it is just John Murray Anderson's greatest hits. The Bridal Veil number um, is something that he had done on stage in various forms. The, the Melting Pot, not only had it existed in stage, but it had actually been in a previous short, made it paramount. So... It is kind of all material that has worked before, which may seem surprising to modern audiences when the comedy comes on, because most of that seems very old-fashioned. Essentially, this was all stage-tested material. Yes. Um, I think when we were doing the initial research for the book, um, one of the biggest discoveries for us was, was all of the, the fact that Anderson and Whiteman had staged much of this before, that... The Bridal Veil was first staged in 1920 for a review Anderson did called What's in a Name, uh, and he kept restaging it throughout different parts of his career. So it was, and, it was, and it's really amazing to learn, you know, you'd think he would keep changing it and improving it, but the version in 1920 seems very much the same from photos and from the scripts, from the lyrics to the song, very much the same as how it ended up in King of Jazz. Um, as you mentioned, another one is, uh, the melting pot of music. That one actually has a few examples before John Murray Anderson did his version in 1925. Um, Ziegfeld did a version, uh, and there was one in a review called The Passing Show, which was done by the Schuberts. Uh, Rhapsody in Blue, of course, we know it was Whiteman's big number. Uh, John Murray Anderson did a stage version inspired by Rhapsody in Blue in 1926 called Rhapsody in Jazz. Uh, he also did another number called The Giant Piano. Uh, one part of his career that we were really interested in when, once we learned more about it, he, from about 1925 to 1928 or 29, he worked for the Paramount Public's theatre chain. Um, and during our research, we discovered that the, the Herman Rosser papers, the designer, production designer, his papers were up in uh, Williamstown at Williams College. And David and I both made separate trips up there and everything was there, all of his production designs, all of these amazing photographs from their stage work. And we, it, it wasn't entirely well, it was quite well organized, but not perfectly. Uh, so we would go through a lot and we kept finding all these connections and we're like, ah, we recognize that, we recognize that. And it was a really, uh, I guess, a journey of discovery for us. Also, the Paul Whiteman papers are at Williams College. And the part that researchers had paid most attention to in the past was the arrangements that his orchestra used. But there were also his scrapbooks, some correspondence, and contracts 
and the contracts confirm that the absolutely crazy numbers in terms of how much money his band was earning were true. They, uh, Whiteman was bringing in you know, three, $400,000 a year himself after paying all of his orchestra expenses. He was extraordinarily successful in the 1920s. All right, so they finished the film and they start testing it. At that point, it, uh, they kept messing with it. They took things in, they took things out. They really took very much a uh, stage approach to, you know, this is the tryout in New Haven. Oh, that number's not working. Let's write another one or, you know, just take it out or things like that. I mean, it's not the sort of thing that you expected to see at Universal. Maybe at uh, uh, what they call MGM Retake Gulch or whatever, uh, <laughs> but not not at Penny Pinching Universal typically. Well, James uncovered a dissertation from the 1960s that was written by someone who had interviewed people who had worked with John Murray Anderson. And that was the way he did it when he had his out-of-town tryouts. Every show, they would rearrange the numbers because it wasn't just where the numbers stood in the show, it was what preceded it and what followed it. And they did the same with the uh, film version, trying all sorts of different combinations and pretty much the big musical numbers seemed to stay intact, but it was the smaller musical numbers and the comedy sections which kept on getting rearranged to give the film a good flow with the audience. Yeah, that was called routining. That was uh, the, how they ordered everything in the show and how you would have you know, certain crescendos and then you'd have a karma or a funny number after one of the big numbers so you could you know, catch your breath and uh, things like that. But all of the major production numbers that they shot are in the final film. It's the comedy numbers, and there were three comedy numbers which uh, were, appeared only in the 1933 reissue, and there were any number of other comedy numbers where we have stills or script material, but nothing survives of it. And then there were some smaller musical numbers which uh, got tried out but uh, didn't make it into the final film. Yeah, they would like, for example, there was a specialty number, uh, Grace Hayes, who was a comedian from the stage and was later very popular on the, on the radio. Her torch song in the movie uh, was in the premiere version, we believe, but ended up being cut out for the main release. That doesn't survive at all? Just a still. Okay. And there's, and there's a 78 uh, record of her singing that song, but it's not off the soundtrack. And one of the um, surprises in the film, though, as an example of how they were still rearranging the film at the last minute, one of the um, real finds of the film is Jeannie Lang. She's in the I Want to Do Things to You number with Paul Whiteman. She also does the, sings the prologue to the uh, Ragdoll number. And she receives no screen credit. And that's because they added her back in after the film opened because the pre the Reviewers had seen a preview version, and they raved about her performance in the reviews. And when the film opened, she wasn't in the picture, so they had to put those numbers back in. Hmm. Did Ragamuffin Romeo get cut entirely, or just her prologue to it? Don't know. Okay. <laughs> That's all right. I think, I think the basically the I Want to Do Things for You number got, got dropped at one point, and when it was returned, instead of having 
an actual real number. It became real 2A, which caused a lot of confusion in later years. That's right. That was it. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, the person who would turn out to be the biggest star to come from it, although he's not in it as much as originally intended, which is Bing Crosby. Whiteman had found this group called the Rhythm Boys, or maybe he created the. I'm not quite sure. Uh, but it was Crosby and two other fellows and singing in what I would say compared to Crosby's later style, it's a little bit more of, you know, the sort of Yale whiff and poof song, or, uh, I thought of the comedian harmonist, the German, uh, sort of scat singing and harmonizing group, not quite fully developed Bing yet, but clearly someone who has, uh, appeal and and charisma that many others in the film don't especially have um and he was going going to do a couple of numbers but lost out on one of them tell me about crosby in this bing crosby uh was in the stage of life where he was really enjoying life and uh just like the band members would go out drinking afterwards because they you know uh had pre-recorded all of the numbers and they were standing you know just miming on stage and he ended up uh, after the opening uh, weekend party that launched the film uh, that was held at the Whiteman Lodge, which was built on the uh, back lot of Universal to try and get the musicians and Whiteman to stick around the lot as much as possible. Um, he managed to uh, flip his car and injure the woman who was a passenger um, and went before a judge. And the judge locked him up for 30 days. So he was supposed to do the Song of the Dawn number in the picture. And there's actually a 78 was released of him singing that song. But instead, it goes to the Universal star, uh, John Bowles, who has a couple of other um, placements in the film. Yeah, I mean, and as you point out in the book, it's really not something that Crosby was suited for. It's this kind of big, heroic uh an- cowboy anthem thing that is not his persona at all. Right, to the extent that he had a persona at the time. But of the three rhythm boys, Crosby's clearly the one who stands out. He's the one who's singing solo under the main titles. He's the one who's singing uh, throughout the cartoon. And then he's usually the one who's standing while the others are uh, sitting in the uh, Bluebirds, Blackbirds number, and then in the Happy Feet number. And somehow Universal did not sign him to a long-term contract and have sharing all the success that Bing Crosby would have over the coming years. True, true. Although he left, Crosby and the Rhythm Boys left um, Whiteman after King of Jazz, and they stayed and did uh, nightclubs in uh, Los Angeles. And he starred in some short films from Max Senate. So it, it took Paramount a while to figure out that he might be a, a player for them. And they introduced him in an ensemble picture called The Big Broadcast in 1932 with a lot of radio stars and um, as opposed to starring Bing Crosby. All right. Well, let's talk about what, how the film, when the film came out, um, what was the you know, it's it's known to have not been particularly successful. Although part of that is just the fact that it costs so much. I mean, I think if it's if its grosses had come for a much less expensive film, it would have been a a hit. Um, so, but you think that basically the time of the review picture was over by the time they finally got it done? 
well, they spent so much time trying to figure out what kind of picture they wanted to make that by the time the film came out, uh, as you said, reviews were kind of passe. It came out at the same time as Paramount on Parade, which again doesn't have any sort of uh, connecting story. And that uh, film came out a week before King of Jazz and it dropped dead also. The real issue was first, it cost too much. The uh, King of Jazz did very well overseas, uh, much better proportionately than it did in the United States because sound caught on later overseas. But they, Universal knew uh, going into it from the previews that it was not going to be a big hit. So they played it off as rapidly as possible. Whereas they had a second picture that was in production at the same time, All Quiet on the Western Front, which was a hit. And that they did a platform release where it played in small theaters in big cities to build up demand before going wide. And it's kind of, we cover this in the appendix, in the body of the book and in the appendix, but you can see how enormously successful All Quiet on Western Front was. So it wasn't just that it was Universal who was one of the smallest studios, but it's the fact that nobody really wanted to see this picture. It comes from a couple different directions. One is that Universal didn't have very good cost controls when it came to making big budget pictures. So whether it was the Hunchback of Notre Dame, Phantom of the Opera, which had several different endings and shut down and went back into production, The Man Who Last, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, Carl Lindley appointed a new head of production in 1929, and that was his son, Carl Lindley Jr. And there's a chapter in the book uh, devoted to Universal Pictures, which talks about the family dynamics, which is not dissimilar to the Murdochs who control 20th Century Fox and News Corp, where it, the, the family wants to bring in the next generation. And Carl Lindley Jr. wanted to improve the quality of the films that were being made by Universal. And this was his first uh, year as a head of the studio in Los Angeles. And that was behind the production of All Quiet on the Western Front, as well as King of Jazz. And they nearly ran out of money and had to do all sorts of things to be able to finish the pictures and get them into release. And then, of course, the Depression hit and uh, Universal uh, survived the Depression, but eventually in uh, about 1936-37, they lost control of the company. As far as King of Jazz goes, they did a reissue in 1933, uh, cut down quite a bit to about, what did you say, about 65 minutes from a, you know from over 100 minutes right. before. Mm -hmm. um, swapping out, interestingly, swapping out some of the comedy numbers so those would be fresh from things that had been cut in 1930. And, I, you know, that was basically free money for Universal, so it was nice to get it. I w still wouldn't say that the movie was ever a hit based on what the numbers are. And then basically the film disappears for 40 years. Where did it go and how did, how did it not get seen? Well, to begin with, Two Color Technicolor became obsolete. Um, three strip Technicolor came in in the mid thirties. Um, so even if they wanted to make any new prints or have any reissues, Technicolor couldn't actually help them out. Technicolor no longer kept that equipment. Um, so they kept the negative, they bolted it away, but they couldn't, they couldn't use it even if they wanted. Um, in the fifties, the 
British Film Institute wanted to do a grand musical series and they desperately wanted to show King of Jazz, but there were no prints available. All they could show was the trailer, which they dug up. Um, so the film effectively became lost. No one could see it. There were no prints around anymore. In the 60s, two prints turned up, both very different. One was from the French release, which actually had, for the foreign versions of King of Jazz, they shot different hosts, different master of ceremonies, speaking in their native languages in French, Czech, Portuguese, Spanish. There was a Japanese one, a Swedish one, Italian, Hungarian, uh, lots of different versions. Um, and so what turned up was a, a French print, but it was a sound on disc print, a bit like Vitaphone, where you would have to synchronize discs with this mute print. Um, and they couldn't, they couldn't find the audio for the French version. They had discs for the Czech version. So the Czech archive actually synced. Uh, the, the French master ceremonies was talking and they kind of dubbed him with the original Czech audio. Uh, the musical numbers remained the same. Um, so that turned up and was shown on a very limited basis uh, for, for at other archives and film museums, but not, not many people saw it. And then a few years after that, a nitrate print turned up in England um, and a BBC television presenter, film presenter called Philip Jenkinson, who was also a film collector, uh, made a copy on 16 millimeter and actually made his own master copy and made new prints for other collector friends. So that the film began to get out there slowly. Uh, it played at a few festivals in the early 70s. The New York Film Festival, I believe, in 1970 or 71, they showed one of his 16 millimeter prints. Um, so that was the first time people saw it. It was a an incomplete nitrate print. Uh, it was slightly in the wrong order. It was missing whole scenes. It was missing parts of the introductions. It was very, very worn. Uh, and the origins of this nitrate print are still still mysterious to this day. Um, some say it was liberated from Mussolini's personal collection in Italy. Um, there are also clues. Uh, Raymond Rohauer owned it at one point. Um, they, but and it's seen, and uh, an MCA Universal executive was apparently the owner also as well. So, you know, they covered their tracks possibly. Um, they may have copied it in you know, in a dubious manner. And that was the source of Everson's print as well, Jenkinson and possibly Mussolini. Yes. Uh, so that when when you saw it, and when I, I'm sure most of the people who appreciated it at that time were seeing that version. Yes, and I should add that in the 80s, uh, Universal uh, put it out on VHS. Uh, they started distributing it to cable networks. So a wider and wider audience saw it, but all these versions were kind of slightly different. They interpreted this, this surviving material differently uh, because, you know, the Universal also dug out the camera negative in the mid-70s, but it was shortened. It was the 65-minute 1933 version. So they kind of combined the footage they had and made an altogether different version. <laughs> um, yeah, the Everson version, when I first saw it uh, in Rochester, it, we compared it to the to the VHS because it had footage that wasn't in the VHS, um, and we were wondering at the time whether it was, you know, Everson's print. We didn't know all the backstory, how unique, unique that footage was to Everson. Let's talk about how uh, you restore 
that sort of Technicolor today. I saw the presentation that James did on uh, early Technicolor musicals at Capitol Fest. And I remember at the end of it, you had uh, a clip from 1929's The Cuckoos, which was, other than King of Jazz, easily the best in terms of image quality of how two-strip Technicolor was presented. The look of it was red plus green making brown to some extent. And King of Jazz, the thing that's so striking and especially was done for the Rhapsody in Blue number, of course, is that it's not really red and green make brown. It's red and green and gray or silver. Um, And that was a deliberate choice with Rhapsody in Blue to make the green look more blue by sort of... uh, draining other color out of it so it seems blue by comparison i mean is that red green and gray look is that really how it looked in in the early 30s do you think um well we can say some original night more material on king of jazz has turned up you know in more recent years so we've we've been able to to view and inspect some of these nitrate prints uh, for King of Jazz and you know we obviously did a book on early technical we we looked at lots of other prints there was a kind of browny, amber, yellowy aesthetic to some of the prints. Uh, yellow was not one of the colors that Technicolor could achieve with the two-color, you know, the red and green process. So they, they, in some cases, they added a kind of varnish over the prints to bring back some of that missing color. Um, so a lot of these prints were, they weren't very highly saturated. They were a bit more muted. Um, what Universal went with with the restoration, they started from the best surviving material, you know, the best possible material you could, the camera negative for about two thirds of, of the film. Um, and they could really demonstrate in that restoration, the original color design, the color aesthetic that they were achieving on set and that, you know, Herman Russell and, and John Murray Anderson worked so carefully to perfect. Were Prince of King of Jazz varnished like that back in the 30s, do you think? They're a little bit more yellowy, yes, I would say. Okay. But in terms of the Technicolor uh, process, they looked, first of all, to get a um, Caucasian flesh tone. And then the other colors fall out where they may. And that was what gave you the uh, red and orange uh, color and then the greenish color. And it was really the flesh tone was what they were trying for. Multicolor also had a red-orange, but uh, went for blue instead of a green. But with uh, Technicolor, two-color Technicolor, you basically, um, you know, you get your green trees, but you don't get your blue skies. Right. <laughs> and that's the trade-off that's made. And in terms of uh, uh, restoration, you know, you can take the two separate images, because it wasn't really two strip, because there was one strip of film going through the camera, but there were... Two, two black and white images for each film frame and then combine those with uh, adding the colors. And if you're doing it digitally, you can line those up uh, very precisely and the resulting digital image is much sharper than the image would have been when the film was first released. Well, and that's what really struck me. I mean, as good as the cuckoos looked in your presentation, James, it was a little soft compared to perfect black and white Mm -hmm. from the same period and this has the sharpness that maybe was the ideal but never quite realized in 1930 at least that's kind of how it looks to me which you know is unquestionably very very pleasing 
Yeah, and I'm yeah. glad you brought up the cuckoos. That's another one where the camera negative does survive. But that was an analog restoration that was done by one of the leading uh, archival color labs called YCM Laboratories uh, out in Burbank, California. Um, and they, they've developed the skills since the 80s to, to you know, work with technicolor camera negatives, both two-color and three-color, and they did Toll of the Sea and Follow Through and lots of these famous restorations you've probably heard and seen. Um, uh, but with King of Jazz, they had the luxury now of digital tools, so they were able to scan at 4K resolution, which is kind of the current cinema standard, uh, the, the camera negs, and as David said, line them up exactly. So we're seeing this, this sharpness that we haven't been able to see before. Let's talk about the, the audio side of the restoration. I know Ron Hutchinson of the Vitaphone Project was one of the people who who pushed for it. Um, the sound in the final version of the film, is that mostly from disc? No, um, it's actually from uh, an original audio track negative, which is the best, their, their original master for the audio, from which uh, all Vitaphone discs would have been made from afterwards. So it's the, most, it's the optimum sound quality you could ask for. Um, the original film prints were, were sound on film. The soundtrack ran on the film. And they just produced Vitaphone discs for theaters who couldn't, couldn't play that sound back. Even though the original two-color negative had been recut down for the reissue, they didn't cut the soundtrack from 1930. They created a new soundtrack to match the recut picture. So that original 1930 soundtrack element was still in storage, and that's what Universal worked from. They did transfer some of the discs and compare the quality, but the uh, soundtrack, uh, optical soundtrack, was the best quality except for a couple sequences which they pulled off of discs. Now what was the interplay between, you were doing this book at the same time both the restoration work was happening, but also your book clearly informed um, the supplemental materials on Criterion's disc, not least because you do several of them, the two of you, uh, give kind of a, uh, a shortened version of the book story. So how did those two projects work in parallel? Yeah, so as David mentioned at the start, um, Universal were in touch with us when they started their restoration. They, they saw, like you, one of our presentations. Um, and we were originally going to do an article, but we kept we were doing the research and we kept finding so much material um, that we, we quickly decided to do a book within a very short t uh, time span as we knew the restoration was coming up. So you're exactly right. We were, we were working with Universal. Our research was informing, informing their work. Uh, we actually told them about some archival holdings that we had discovered, um, particularly one element in Denmark that they were not aware of, and that was we were able to recover one scene that no one had ever seen before. That's the... It's um, a dash of spice. It's the one where they're looking through the keyhole in on a private moment. Um, we visited the Universal lot at one point in our in our research, and they showed us the restoration team there showed us their work in progress. They just had the scans back, um, so it was the first time we saw the footage and we were completely blown away. Um, during the restoration process, we advised on how the colours should be. Um, we gave examples from original prints and from other Technicolor films of the era. Um, we also worked with the restoration team quite closely to advise on the original order of the film. We were, we were talking about that earlier. It wasn't entirely clear to anyone um, exactly how the, the original film ran. Um, we, there was no actual 
definite script of the released version. Uh, there were different scripts elements during the production and editing phases. Uh, so we had to all piece everything back together. Um, but that was it was quite interesting to do that. We also provided some input as far as stills to cover the sections where they had soundtrack but no picture. And then uh, Criterion enters the picture with the Blu-ray and DVD release. And a big big part of that is that you in, you have a uh, a series of short documentaries explaining the history of the film, much as you do in the book. Um, how did those? How did that come about? Well. I'd worked with uh, Karen Stetler, the Criterion producer in the past, and she reached out to uh, some people to do the um, audio commentary. She also reached out to Michael Feinstein for a video interview, and then she talked to us about providing some uh, visual essays. And we put together, I think, a total of uh, nearly 45 minutes with uh, still images and moving image with narration talking through some of the you know, forgotten behind-the-scenes stories of how the film came together. So did you produce those yourselves? We scripted them and chose the images and recorded the narration, and then we worked with the Criterion team as far as refining the timings and you know, how the zooming in on the images and how well, uh, you know, how big the images were on the screen. And it actually worked very well. We went through maybe five or six different iterations where they started with a script and then we provided notes. It was actually, it was great fun to actually be able to include many more images we weren't able to squeeze in our book and even discover new images and, and new things to talk about. So in the end, I mean, what what's your feeling? This is a film you've obviously devoted a lot of time to, yet in your comments in the in the book recognize that it has some flaws in how it's put together and it's not entirely surprising that audiences only responded to it so well. Um, what do you think people will get from being exposed to this, this interesting antique uh, at, at this late date? Well, I think it's, it's been great to follow the restoration through all of its stages and, you know, reach the public. And I, we didn't, you know, quite know how people would react when, when it, appeared in the 70s in a kind of a mutilated, uh, downgraded form. I think the response was kind of muted by most audience members. Um, so we didn't know what we would what we would see and how audiences would react. Um, the premiere was at the Museum of Modern Art in 2016, uh, as a packed house, and everyone loved it. You know, they were clapping along and cheering, and admittedly, a lot of them were probably fans of the film. Uh, already, but they'd never seen it looking like this. And I think when you watch it with an audience or at home on this new you know, Blu-ray that's come out, I think the general response is very favourable, very enjoyable. It's you know, it's a great, it's a great night. It's um, it's just fun to watch. It's carefully crafted, and you can actually finally appreciate the artistry of of it instead of you know squinting at these murky versions we've seen on VHS over the years. And in terms of the film being a failure. Everybody who worked on it thought that it was going to be an enormous success because everything that they'd worked on in their careers to that date had been an enormous success. And I think for us, it's interesting in that had it been commercially successful, then there would have been other films like it. But instead, the fact that it was, it cost too much and it was released at the wrong time meant that it was kind of a dead end 
in terms of motion picture style, in terms of motion picture storytelling, in terms of uh, making musicals, because it was, um, you know, at the very tail end of the musical cycle in 1930, and it wasn't until 1933 that uh, musicals took off again. So in that way, it's a, the film, you know, out of that context, it is a success when you watch it with an audience. And it's absolutely fascinating to, to see it on the screen and then to read about all of the different elements that came into making the film uh, what it was. Once again, that music is from an unrestored copy of the trailer. I like excerpting trailers in this podcast because they give you a feel for how they sold the movie when it came out. But the audio quality on the new video release is much, much better. Criterion's Blu-ray and DVD release of King of Jazz is available now, in all the usual places. The book King of Jazz, Paul Whiteman's Technicolor Review, is available in the usual places too, but I recommend ordering it directly from the website, kingofjazzbook.com, because you'll get a numbered copy autographed by David Pierce and James Layton for about the same price. Links for all of these are in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, David Pierce and James Layton. Music is by Kevin McLeod, at least when it's not by Paul Whiteman or somebody. Be sure you never miss an episode. Subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And if you have a chance, leave us a rating and a review at iTunes. That helps other people discover us too. And join us at Nitrateville, where we've talked a lot about King of Jazz. Thanks. <laughs>